Our second lesson today comes from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, a complicated letter. I am preaching in these Sundays of July from Romans chapter 8, and this is the second in a short sermon series from that chapter. Our text today begins at verse 12 and goes all the way through verse uh, 30. Let's listen for God's word today. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not, of the fle- not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you do, did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us with our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, there's that word again, debtors. You thought you could come to church and get some respite from that whole conversation about debt, right? And the passage starts out, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. But you knew that already, if you've been reading the paper. You knew that already. How much are we in debt? Well, the Debt Clock website shows that the United States debt is beyond $54 trillion. You've heard about this, right? The U.S. government debt is hovering around $14 trillion. That's $46,000 per citizen. 
You hear me? Yikes. These numbers seem too large even to make sense, and we keep hearing them. The debt ceiling that is uh, under discussion is supposed to expire on August the 2nd. Much of the discussion seems to be how to cut $2 trillion or $4 trillion from the federal budget. And the basic problem is that the federal government incurs $100 billion per month in new debt. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. That's Paul. That's what Paul says. We're debtors. About a decade ago, I went to the meeting of the World Council of Churches in Zimbabwe, Africa. It was a fascinating meeting that allowed a conversation of, with the church and the global church and all the church's work and all the partners across the world seeking to live out faithfulness and service to Christ. A main theme of that meeting, even 10 or 12 years ago, was the global church's call to advocate for poor countries who are being swallowed up by debt. The church's call was to help these countries appeal to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to give them some relief from the debt. And now we learn our own country debt in trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars debt is suffocating. It's suffocating for the poorest countries. It's suffocating for our country. It's suffocating for individuals. It's paralyzing. It's debilitating. And Paul starts out this passage, we're debtors. Thankfully, Paul's not talking about financial debt. Paul is talking about our tendency to be debtors of the flesh. We talked about that word last week in the preceding passage in this chapter. Paul talks about flesh in contrast to the spirit in this whole chapter. Flesh is Paul's way of talking about the self. Our tendency as human beings is to become so caught up in selfish things, selfish interests, our Inclination, whenever we're making decisions, whenever we're facing choices, whenever we're doing things, is to act first for the self, with the me in mind primarily. Perhaps this is why all those debt debates are so complicated. Living for the self, serving self, attaining only for the self is not God's way for us, according to Paul. Someone once said that half of all of our problems come when we get our own way. The other half of our problems come when we want to get our own way more. Selfishness is pervasive. Another person says that too many of us conduct our lives cafeteria-style, self-serving. I want this, I want this, I want this. And Jesus and all the great faiths are saying it's not about self. It's about serving God and serving others. Life in the Spirit. This is Paul's point. And Paul's emphasis on debt may may ring of the financial conversations that we're having, but mostly Paul is trying to help us with how to live in this chapter. Paul wants us to know we are debtors. 
not to the flesh, not to the self. We owe nothing to the self, he says. Paul wants us to know we are people of the Spirit. That means in our best moments, in the Spirit, we think not of self but but of others. We act not for self but for God, for service. This is the life God intends for us. We're led by the Spirit, which makes us children of God, he's saying here. And to be led by the Spirit means to lead a life serving God and serving others. Paul is trying to paint a picture of what real life, truthful life, faithful life looks like, hoping that in the Spirit we will live that life. And then, moving on from this thinking about debt and being debtors, Paul gives attention to another word that often paralyzes us. Fear. Paul says, we don't receive the Spirit in order to fall back into fear. You have received the Spirit of adoption. How do we find our way in this complex world? How do we live faithfully? This is Paul's goal. Well, he's showing us the way. We're to move and we're to keep moving every minute, every hour, every day, all the seasons of our lives from self to service, from death to life, from flesh to the spirit, and from fear to faith. You are children of God, he says. You've been adopted. We are all heirs of Christ. Joint heirs. This intends to shape our lives from fear to faith. Now, there are basically two ways of talking about fear in the Bible. Often there are references through Scripture to the fear of the Lord. The God of the Bible is holy. The God of the Bible is other, apart from us, apart from creation, distinct, different. God is the author of all. God is the giver of all. So God is someone to be feared, meaning treated with respect, treated with awe. God is majestic. God is full of wonder and deserves our worship, our hymns of praise, our accolades. God deserves our obedience. God is far larger than we can comprehend. God is not to be taken lightly. So in this sense, fear of the Lord is appropriate respect for God. It's submission to the God of the universe. And this kind of fear of the Lord is important. It's essential then for faith, real faith. The other use of the word fear in the Bible grows out of the Greek word phobio, which, as you can guess, gives us our word phobia. This fear has to do with what happens to us. This, this word fear has to do with being afraid. It literally means to quake, to tremble in nervousness and concern and real fear. We live, friends, we know it, in a dangerous world. We're surrounded often by mean people on our streets, in the world. We are vulnerable to lots of threats. You are. I am. Cancer lurks all around us and can attack us from overexposure to certain things. It can be in the groundwater. Maybe it's from the sun, perhaps, or even in our food. We have plenty of other worries and fears that haunt us. Uh, The loss of our spouse. 
the loss of a child or another loved one, the loss of our job, the loss of our savings, the loss of our sense of security. These are legitimate fears. And then there's fear of terror strikes, fear of disaster, fears all around us. We know we can lose, even quickly, what we think we can't live without. And it gives us fear. We want to avoid these realities. We tend to worry about these as possibilities. They're part of human life. Anxiety emerges, and then it's close cousin that becomes overwhelming, paralyzing, even debilitating fear. Fear can get the best of us, overwhelm us. Paul says, you've not been given the spirit to fall back into fear. You've been adopted. You have been made heirs of God. Your life, your life, your destiny, it is secure in God's love and in God's care. And this is not just Paul speaking. All through the Bible, trust in God intends to free us from fear. Psalm 46, you heard it, says God is our refuge and strength, a present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Seventy-five times in the Old Testament come two words together, fear not. Seventy-five times they're spoken by God, they're spoken by angels, they're the most prominent command in all of Scripture with God's presence, with God's Spirit. Fear is not meant to be what shapes our lives. Again, we live according to the Spirit. We've been adopted as God's children. This is not so we can fall into fear. It's so we can live with confidence and live with purpose and live with com commitment and care as God's partners serving in the world. God gives us through the Spirit, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, a different way of seeing, a different way of living, a different way of functioning in the world. This is Paul's message. Now let me tell you about a particular season of fear in my own life. Almost exactly 10 years ago, my family had a week at the beach. Myself, my wife Ginger, our three children, we had a wonderful vacation week. On the last morning of the week, after a week of playing in the ocean, a week of fixing fine seafood dinners, a week of vacationing together, on the last morning, I woke up and I could not see. My vision was very peculiar. It caused me to lose my balance. I could not get focused on the world. Ginger thought I was trying to get out of cleaning the house on the last day of the, of the week. But my sense of orientation and my sense of perspective was very troubling, very frightening. And it wasn't long before Ginger recognized this too. A scary, different morning. After lots of worry, after finding our way home, after conversations with doctors, after going through test after test and appointments that included lying in MRI machines and having an angiogram of my brain, it was concluded that I had had a stroke. I had lost peripheral vision on my whole right side. This stroke 
still affects me. It's permanent. And the cause of it is unknown, totally. And you know, when this happened, the moment this was happening with all these tests and procedures was the very same season of September 11, 2001. The attack on the World Trade Centers and the turmoil of those days. So Ginger and I were going through a great season of anxiety and fear like never before. And on top of that, our nation was under siege. Those were hard days for faith. They were days filled of doubt and fear. Here's the truth. Paul's message, the gospel. We have not been given the Spirit, so we fall back into fear. We've been adopted as God's children. No matter the dangers that come my way or your way, no matter the insecurities that wake us up in the night, no matter the bad news from the doctor or the no news from the doctor, which may be worse, or even the threats that the world is coming apart, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in times of trouble. I have a blessed and sincere perspective about this. God is at our side, behind and before. Life changes, life challenges, anxiety, fears, they are real. But in all things, in all things, we are heirs. We are God's children. We can cry, Abba, Father, as the text says, because our God is not far off and distant. Our God is real and in the midst of it with us. Our God is personal. Our God knows what we're dealing with wherever we find ourselves. Our God never leaves us. That's the promise. Life is full of dangers. Life gets complicated. Losses and challenges come our way. But we're God's children whose lives are held in God's eternal and faithful care. And that's not the end of this passage. There's more good news. We have our destiny with God no matter what. Our lives are held by God no matter what. And it's not just our lives. It's the whole creation that's in God's care. This passage affirms that the whole world, groaning for redemption... All of creation, the sick and troubled pieces of the whole world will be offered healing and hope by God. Even, this is what it says, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How great is that? The sick rivers, the polluted bays, the messed up lands and Ozone layers and all about our planet will find redemption and wholeness and hope and peace because of God, God's love, God's faithfulness, God's care. Even more than that, we have the fantastic verse. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purposes. That's this passage also. The longer I live, the more I experience the complexities, the confusions, the despair, the doubt of life, the more I find this verse 
especially powerful. And the translation of this particular verse can give even deeper insights about its power, about God, about God's purposes for our life and for our faith. The way this verse appears in this Bible on the pulpit, the new RSV, reads like this. We know that all things work together for good. But there are some very subtle and significant options about what this verse really means. Significant options about how to put the English words and in what order. And the RSV changes it in an important way. The RSV word order is slightly different but significantly changed. The RSV says, we know that in everything, God works for good. You catch that? An important and powerful distinction for me. All things work together for good in this Bible. In all things, God works together for good. I like that second translation better. Because I'm pretty sure that everything is not always for the best. Everything is not always good. My stroke, 9-11, the pain of our streets, our economic confusion, or whatever else is messing up our lives and messing up our world, all of that is not good. Everything is not always the best. But in everything, in everything, God works toward the best for the best, in partnership with those who love God. Every tragedy or loss is not God's plan. But in every tragedy and in every loss, God is still God and God is still working and God is still moving all toward wholeness and hope, redemption for our lives, redemption and healing for the whole world. We do not fall into fear. We have been adopted as God's children. We are heirs of salvation, Paul says. Even the whole creation will be healed and made whole. This is the way our lives and this is the way our whole world moves toward God's redemption, toward God's wholeness in all things. See, our greatest joys, our deepest sorrows, in all things, our gains, our losses, in all things, the ups and downs of our crazy and complicated Lives and world in everything, God is working for healing, wholeness, and hope. That's the promise. Friends, in these summer days, in whatever days you're living in, in all our days, in all of our lives forever, may God's Spirit cover us and claim us and remake us in the way God intends us to be. Not fear, faith. And trusting that in all things, God works for good. We live. And you know what? We serve. We keep giving our lives for goodness and hope, for peace and justice in the world, because we know the truth in everything. God is working, and we live toward God's purposes. Peace, hope, wholeness forever. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O God, help our unbelief. 
we commit our lives to trusting and serving Christ our Lord.